that is what Final Five is about. It's not about changing who wins. It's about changing incentives for the winners so that they're incentivized to serve the, the broader public interest. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today, Solomon Lieberman and Aaron Menenberg, are the co-executive directors of the Institute for Political Innovation. That institute was founded in 2020 by Catherine Gale to catalyze political change by working to revamp our electoral system with final five primaries and ranked choice general elections, as well as legislative reforms in Congress and the state legislatures. Catherine is the author of a book, which I recently read, called The Politics Industry, How Political Innovation Can Break Partisan Gridlock and Save Our Democracy, which she co-authored with Harvard Business School professor Michael E. Porter, which lays out her reasoning in this area. Solomon and Aaron, who represent the two different sides of a bipartisan push for these reforms, were fun to talk to about how they're going about building an organization aimed at creating these changes and why they think these reforms would have far-reaching effects on how our elected representatives govern. Given the polarization and dysfunction in our current system, it makes sense to consider structural changes and how they might affect elections and governing incentives. We had a good conversation about it, and you should listen. So, first my sponsor, then my interview with Solomon and Aaron of the Institute for Political Innovation. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Would you guys each mind introducing yourselves and giving me quick biographies? Solomon Lieberman, Saul. I'm the co-executive director of the Institute for Political Innovation, or IPI, with Aaron, who you'll meet shortly. And my background is almost entirely in cause-oriented work, especially over the last 15 years, most of which has been here in Chicago. And that has been broken up across public education, working to found a network of schools for high-need kids on the northwest side of Chicago initially, and then into kind of in the loop in broader Chicago. Second, and most of my time in and around uh, investigative journalism with a focus on, um, you know, kind of watching government, shining a light on government uh, and encouraging transparency, sort of focusing on cronyism, malfeasance. Kind of, there's a, it's a fertile field here in Chicagoland, if, if that's your area of focus in journalism. And then also spend some time sort of adjacently in good government reform, some of it meat and potatoes, nonpartisan stuff like the Freedom of Information Act and the Open Meetings Act that support transparency and good flow of information for people like journalists, as well as just civic advocates. And then also some time on redistricting and some other efforts, which you know beat my head against that wall a fair amount here in Illinois. And 
As far as sort of party preference and background? Proud Chicago Democrat. One of the things that Aaron and I like to talk about are the places we actually do agree, considering that we are on different sides. And like, there are some places where as a Democrat, like I am, I feel sort of unwelcome in the party. Uh, and that's, I think, why we're natural partners is because we're looking for environments where we can, the, the foundations of our political belief can mesh with sort of the oddities that define our point of view and what we want to focus our energies on in, in a more modern context. Aaron? Yeah, so I'm I'm the other co-executive director. My name's Aaron Menenberg. Uh, although I live in Chicago now, I spent almost all of my professional life in Washington, D.C. Um, I started out in the think tank world, um, did government relations for the defense community, spent time running a sort of professional development fellowship, and then most recently ran my own uh, consulting firm where we advise high net worth individuals on, you know, sort of how to be effective and influential in politics, both by leveraging money and influence and networks and sort of other tools that, you know, people like that have. I came to this work having contributed to a, a system that I'm now trying to change. And it's just, it's become a really vital mission for me personally. That's um, a system I've seen from the inside for, you know, a decade and a half be changed in a way that creates more accountability, that creates um, government activity that better reflects where Americans actually are on issues of policy and politics. And um, and just very excited to be doing this with someone like Saul. One of the sort of upsides of this job is, you know, I come from the Republican side of the aisle. Um, all my work has been over there previous to this. I do think this will be good for the Republican Party. I think it'll be good for the Democratic Party too. Um, I think it'd be good for independents and everybody else because Final Five really does affect everybody in the same way because it is a systems change that deals with incentives. But for me, the most important thing uh, about this is personally, not professionally, is getting to work with people like Saul, basically people on the other side of the aisle with whom I never would have worked if I'd stayed in the lane I was in. It's been a real pleasure to get to know Democrats, progressives, independents, etc., um, through work, which becomes very personal very quickly. The kind of experience I've been able to have so far in that in that sense is something I, I wish more Americans would be able to experience too. Makes sense. I'm glad you guys are getting along. That can't last, but uh, it's, a, it's a good thing at this point. Trying to co-lead a organization when it works well is, I think my sense is that it can be amazing because you don't have you know, all the weight on one person's shoulders. And, and as long as you get along, that's great. And how have you prepared for collaborating and being co-executive? Let directors? me attempt to answer that question and then see how, what Aaron thinks. Um, so initially, um, you know, I've been, I've been at this for about two years and most of that is executive director um, on the founding side. And then Aaron joined us in February of this year with a more narrow focus. And it was clear to me, I think it, Aaron, I don't know if it took a month or two that we would complement each other at the highest level of the organization. And so the best way I've described it is, I don't know, I think it's civil engineers or people who kind of design, you know, planned urban communities often don't build the sidewalks. They lay the grass and then they wait to see where people walk and then they go, okay, that's where the sidewalk should be. Right. That's really what I observed. Like it was just so clear that I was coming to him. 
he was coming to me. He was seeing thing I, things I, I was, and he was better at things than I was. And so then we could very naturally, to your question of preparedness, we had a, we have four or five work streams, naturally split them up and then, you know, work together and, um, you know, provide feedback and guidance on the ones that we don't quote unquote own, but respect the other's expertise along the way. And I think we've been able to do that almost without, I think without conflict for sure over the last nine months. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's, there's not been conflict. Um, so I think it's been a little kind in terms of the value that I, that I add, the things that I bring, but it I will underscore just how natural the division has been and being able to divide according to our sort of areas of strength and expertise allows us, I think, also to be more collaborative on the bigger picture stuff because we bring the necessary knowledge to those those sort of grander strategic level discussions. So I read a book called The Politics Industry, which I'm quite confident that you would be familiar with. Who is Catherine Gale and her co-author and what does she have to do with your institute for political innovation. She is the reason, the catalyst, the originator, you know, of all of this. And it goes back, you know, well before the book. Her path was one that's, I think, most often defined in these conversations as, you know, a former CEO and who ran a company that she sold in, I think it's about 15, 16, something in that territory. And I think all the while was engaged with politics at varying levels from candidates to ideas to nonpartisan reforms and kind of went through her stages of, she calls them her five stages of political grief, as she was kind of framing in her mind what became politics industry theory. And she brought that idea to Michael E. Porter, the you know famed uh, Harvard Business School professor and originator of industry competition thinking, shared value, the five forces, you know, canon stuff for B school kids. And, you know, with Michael, then crafted the first Harvard report in 2017, which is political competition, and then framed for the first time kind of how to look at politics as an industry, not some immutable, sacrosanct space that isn't subject to some of the same forces that footwear or refrigerators, whatever you sell, might be subject to. Now, now that's not the same thing as saying as politics is a business. We can close that rabbit hole later. And then from there, from 17, started to see from that report, interest and engagement from folks kind of across the political reform community. People were paying attention to things like these, but really thinking that there needed to be more work to really get the business case out so that people could take it seriously And it could become sort of a top tier reform in the way that redistricting or maybe term limits at some point over the last couple of decades has been discussed. And that led to the book, The Politics Industry Theory, the thinking being that that would be a great mechanism to create demand for one of the key prescriptions of the book, which is Final Five Voting, which we'll we'll get into here, I'm sure. And then, you know, very quickly in June of 20, as we all know, was a you know, an anomalous period where you had some of the, you know, if we're talking purely in terms of news and media, the biggest news stories of ever in terms of how they came together at one point, you had the 2020 election, you had the pandemic, and then you had everything going on with, um, you know, the social justice issues throughout the country. But that said, the book came out right smack dab in the middle of that in June 2020, it created a lot of demand, and we needed a way to capture it. And that's why we've created the Institute for Political Innovation so that you know, if, if a business leader or a grassroots group in, in a state wants to take a hand at this, we can be there to support them along the way in various phases. So I answered a little bit more. You asked me about Catherine. 
I gave some Catherine and then I went into the organization. What do you guys think of Catherine? I, she has turned the light bulb on for both of us. That's the reason that we're here. Um, I think she has ability, an ability to cut through the traditional conversation around political reform and both reframe it in a way that f- turns light bulb on for many people, especially those who have, you know, been involved in high levels in, of institutional work uh, of the institutions across the country, and is also just determined from sunup to good night to put that to work and support it. She is a philanthropist, right? She is the chairman of a group of, a, of our board and our organizations. Um, she matches that with a commitment and, and work ethic that's off, hard to match. I agree with all that. I'll just add one thing, which is, you know, she and Saul created a organization that I think it's, it's unique among reform groups. Um, in fact, I don't really even consider IPI to be a reform organization. And I don't even fully consider Final Five voting, although it is reform, to sort of be best described and thought of as a reform. Catherine brings a sensibility to this work that certainly, at least for me, aligns with how you win in politics. That sets IPI and Catherine apart from other groups and people in the space. And that, in addition to Final Five itself, Saul and the team is what really attracted me to this work. Tell me the stage of the organization right now. Is it a nonprofit? How many people? How much money have you raised? What? Where are you in developing this entity right now? I'll get to most of that specifically for you. We are a nonprofit. We have had, um, I think we expected growth, but not this much. And I think that's a credit to the work, the demand for it, and just the moment we're all living in, right? And I'm sure it's something you feel every day. And I know that you've talked about it a lot on this podcast because I've listened to some of them. What are we going to do with this urgency? How are we going to serve and support our rickety democracy? People have come to that work with dollars, with interest to be, you know, participate as a, as a staff member. So right now we have about 15 people here at the Institute. And um, we had about three or four, maybe a, maybe one more, maybe five this time last year. So that's a lot of growth in a year. Our stage of work is we're entering shortly an election year where we hope to see some of our first ballot initiatives mature and start to pass while we're also continuing to work on our legislative efforts, which are a little bit more of a slow burn, which we can be more specific about, and then support those with theory and scholarship, which I spend a lot of time on marketing communications to make sure we're winning hearts and minds. But also, you know, I've said this before, but if we have the chutzpah to think that we can change how elections for Congress work, we better match that with a rigorous, disciplined approach to really keep pressing on that theory and try to shine a light on unintended consequences, try to think about how those impacts scale, um, what questions aren't we asking, what are other people seeing, and then how can we continue to investigate them? So those are all parallel paths. The part of that question you didn't answer was about how much you've raised. Right. Let me. Any reason you're not answering uh, that? I mean, I think it, at this point, Aaron, I'm now looking at you, buddy, about I've never been asked that on a podcast before, frankly. So <laughs> um, I, I'm sort of surprised by it, well, but I'll let, yeah. Uh, to Saul's point, we've, we've raised enough to triple in size in the last year, and we've grown more audacious in the scope of the, kind of the amount of campaigns we want to build out. I'll reverse engineer it for you, right? So we, we have a goal on the campaign team to win 15 states by the end of 2030. 
Alaska has already been one, so we're down to 14. Alaska was almost $7 million. Alaska is a, I mean, a unique state. They all are, right? But in some particular ways, we may do a couple of states that cost $7 million. They're more likely to sort of range probably between 10 and $18 million a pop. If you want to do 15 of those over 10 years, you can do some math there. Then we have operational costs and other things too. Yeah. I mean, I guess the reason that I asked is one of the things that brought you to my attention was an article in Puck uh, by Teddy Schleifer. You're probably aware of that reporter and that article. He's a smart guy and well-connected and he, and he dropped the greater than $100 million figure into that article and also some of the funders. I don't raise that because of sort of the gossip value, but because if you come out of the gate with that kind of backing, whether it's from a Reed Hoffman or, or other people like that, you signal something about the resources that you're going to bring to something that is very unusual in the political reform space. It's not that unusual in the partisan space, right? It's not that unusual for the Koch brothers to push one point of view, but it's very unusual, I think, in the reform space. So talk a little bit about like where you're finding support and why it's on that scale beyond what you already said. Yeah, let me let me take a first stab at that. So, because I want to interject one point here, I'm not going to dodge the the question, but I want to start by interjecting a point here, which is, you know, when we say this when we meet with people in states, when we're meeting with you know critical stakeholders to due diligence a state and see if there is a problem there that Final Five solves and a coalition in the state that wants to actually run the thing. And we say this to them, I'll say it to you and anybody else, is we're not the national group that comes into a state and says, you're doing it wrong. We know how to do it right. We're going to do it for you. Sit back and take it. It's not what IPI is. It's not how we operate. The reason I bring that into the sort of money conversation is the same goes for funding. We're not in a position where we want to or frankly can fund five or six ballot initiatives that are going to cost 10 to 20 million a pop every two years, right? That's just, we don't have that kind of money. We ourselves are not going to get it. Nevertheless, that money needs to come together. So when we think about fundraising and coalition building, we think about it both from this national perspective, but also from the state perspective where we're pursuing potential campaigns, right? And so it made news about a, a month or so ago, three weeks ago, that you know we're helping to to launch an effort in Nevada. Ballot language has been filed in Nevada, right? And we anticipate several months you know, of getting it through the courts and then signature collection. And then that's when the campaign sort of starts up. We're in the process right now of coalescing a, a group of Nevada stakeholders, business, civic groups, teachers, all of that, labor. I mean, sort of you name it. The ledger in Nevada, those for whom the system doesn't work, is very long. It's a great state for Final Five, which makes it an unfortunate state for the people who have to deal with their government there. But that is coming together because the demand is there, because the problem is there and Final Five solves it. I shouldn't say solves it. It will at least significantly help address it. And sort of the size of the problem and the ability of the solution to address it, I think you're seeing that align with the amounts of money and the seriousness of the people who are coming in. And I think that's what makes this different and special and you know plausible and viable. I feel like we should go back and talk about what are you saying when you're saying Final Five? I've caught up on that, but I, I doubt that 
people listening to this would know that phrase yet. They might know Final Four from basketball or something, but Final Five in politics. Yeah. What do you mean? Um, how about I do problem, Aaron, and you want to do solution? I think that's a, it's a good way of framing it. So I would say there are three key things. The first, and just what we're trying to solve with it. The first is that Washington isn't broken. It is doing exactly what it's designed to do. I mean, I think that's a core like guiding principle for how we get to crafting Final Five as a solution. And it also will not self-correct. Our tendency, I think, is to romanticize politics, but um, we think it's much more helpful to see it as a systems problem. I know you've done some work. I've seen you know some of your history around tech, and a lot of that is rooted in design thinking, which is some of the stuff I spent a lot of time in. So um, disentangling that and seeing it as a systems problem that's metastasized and normalized itself over the last several decades is sort of a, a starting point. And then the second, and which I've already sort of hit on from Catherine's work, is that it is an industry, not some immutable institution. And this is both good and bad. It's bad in that it is an industry unlike almost any other in that you have these two actors, these two parties, these two rivals who are enabled to redesign the system as they go. And they can do that in service of their own entrenchment, right? Not always. I mean, people are self-interested. They're rational actors, wherever they do, wherever they work. I think we agree on that. It's good because thanks to the constitution, we can change it, but how? And I think, that, again, that also speaks to when you start thinking about it, like a systems problem, a systems problem within an industry, you get to like, you know, what is creating that design? What are the rules that govern that system? So like any industry, the rules determine what the, the machinery spits out. So in Washington, you know, from pulling all this back and thinking about, again, with that healthy competition sensibility, there are these two key election rules that incentivize our elected leaders to solve political problems over policy problems. Right. And then, so then you get to the heart of it for us, which is it depends on who you talk to across the reform spectrum. You know, we are doing this work not to create a different election system based to create a certain type of winner, but to create new incentives for what those winners are incentivized to do so they can solve problems. And then that I think that's a good foundation for what Final Five is. And I'll pass it to Aaron for that. But let me ask one question about the problem side before we get to that, which is like, what was persuasive to me as a observer of politics is this sense that the primaries on both parties' side are at this moment in history advantaging a certain kind of candidate, typically a candidate that is more favored by the most active part of the voting population, the people that get out in primaries that can often be the people most on the wing or the people who are most loud or willing to cater to the base, I guess would be negative partisans and often described as negative partisans or animated by out party hate people who hate yeah. the other side. Yes. It feels to me like a very important part of describing the problem is realizing that we do have a systematic issue with our primaries that is driving in a lot of cases, the wrong kind of person to to the general election. Right, and this gets to incentives and you know how people per, how people act and what they respond to, what guides their behavior. So, I think something like eighty percent of members of the House are elected by you know ten percent of the eligible voters in their their districts. And at, to your point, you know many of those those races are won in the primary. 
with very small turnout, very thin slice. And many of those voters are animated by out party hate, right? Animated by negative partisanship, like that effective polarization that exists there is determinative. So those people become the bosses of those elected. So when, you know, if, let's say you're a representative, you've been elected in one of these party primary races. When you go to look at a leg- piece of legislation, when you're in office, the first question you ask yourself isn't, is this good for my district? Is this a good policy? You know, what will the benefits of it be over time? You look back and you think about, okay, I'm going to have a primary race in 18 months. Will I win or lose? That's that sort of Damocles that hangs over your head. And that's, that is the key incentive. So how do you start, how do you unmake that? So that problem solving is liberated, right, from the tyranny of that party primary. So that's sort of, that's thing one. And so then, in, and then reshaping that, you get into, okay, then how do you change the general election so that that's the electorate, that's the election that matters? And so I don't want to, now I'm taking over for Aaron, so I'm going to shut up. <laughs> There's a very famous political science article that I remember from my days in grad school by David Mayhew called The Case of the Vanishing Marginals. What he meant by marginals are the close elections, the, the, the districts in the House that were in the middle that were really contested. And he did a series of histograms of the shape of that distribution of 435 congressional elections. And over time, it used to look like kind of a bell curve. And it switched over time to a sort of two-humped camel-like thing with very few close elections in the middle and a a pile of uh, sort of uncontested districts for each party. And I think over time, since that was published, and that's a long time ago, it's gotten worse and worse. And there's just a ton of safe districts. And there's a small number in the middle that both parties go after. And sometimes it could be as low as 30. And sometimes in a big election, you go up to 80 or something. But it's a very small proportion of the races are general election contests, true ones. Well, definitely. I mean, the, the, the redistricting that just happened in Nevada turned a purple state blue. And the redistricting that just happened in Texas, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it's a state that went from something like, you know, 12 competitive districts to I now think just one. And gerrymandering is one part, incumbency advantage, other things all came together to make... All of those things. Yes. Which is to me the beauty of Final Five voting, which is it is, to my knowledge, the only reform that focuses on what happens to the winner, not on trying to affect who the winner is. Now, that's not to say Final Five won't affect who the winner is, but districts will still be districts and voters will still vote in their zip code, in their district. We don't, we're not but, you know, moving people to you know, try and diversify a uh, you know, congressional district or whatever. These are all things that are very hard to do. They're very expensive. They oftentimes break down along ideological lines. And so Final Five, part of its design is to make sure that no matter who wins, they have healthier incentives guiding their behavior, right? It's something that we can do now that will help now and give us time to maybe address some of these other things, whether it's redistricting or whatever. Um, but it also is a recognition of the reality of where voters are, both on issues, on party affiliation and geography. So final five, right, it's two things. We, re- we replace the partisan primary with a single open primary Every candidate who qualifies for the ballot is on the same ballot. Any registered voter can go vote regardless of party affiliation. Voters go into the primary, they pick their top candidate. 
the top five vote getters then go on to the general election. So we have an up to five way general election. Then we use ranked choice voting in the general election to determine a majority winner, right? When you have a five way, the last thing that you want is a plurality winner. Someone can win with 21% of the vote that's not particularly democratic, nor does it represent you know, a majority of the district or the, I should say the voting electorate. So when you package those two things together, to use Saul's term, you've removed the sort of Damocles that hangs over the winner of the election, which then allows them to actually service the majority of the electorate that they had to put together in the general to win, because they want to maintain that majority to win re-election, right? So then in that process, in that campaign, it makes second place votes in particular very important, right? And so now you have candidates engaging with a wider constituency, a wider set of issues, and in a certain sense, tying politics more back to the electorate level, not so much the national level, right? If you're running in the House district, if your audience is no longer the primary voter, but the general electorate voter, you're dealing with a much more diverse swath of people, even in a very red or a very blue district. Um, and so it's, it's our belief that it will also sort of help make politics a little bit more local in that sense creating more accountability for the winners. I understand the theory of that. And I think it's fairly self-evident to anyone who's observed politics that you would have some different results in some districts if you ran that kind of scenario. But what makes you sure that the claim people will operate differently in Congress connect that up a little bit more? Yeah, well, I'll give you a real life example because it's already happened in Alaska. So, you know, I think we mentioned that Alaska passed this in 2020. They're going to use it for the first time in 2022, but the incentives are already playing out. So I'll try and skip over a lot of the sort of nuanced details because it's not really important. Basically, this passed in 2020, November of 2020, they were coming up on a budget crisis in that state. It's a state where the state government matters a great deal. Did it pass final five or was it ranked choice? What just it, it, it passed final four instead of final five, but it, it's the open primary four-way general election, RCV in the general. Um, it passed in November. They needed to, to pass a budget by the end of the year. That's that's a, a state with a Republican governor with a history of primarying Republicans who don't go his way on the issues he cares about. And there's always this sort of tussle in Alaska with the, the state budget, right? They have to fund the budget. Uh, and the government, but they also have to send out the check, right, from the, the the oil revenues. And usually it's the stance, how big can the check be? How big can the state government be? And the governor was putting forward a budget that most of the legislature did not feel comfortable with. It, along with the check, were both sort of too big, and, and therefore their assessment was that it was fiscally irresponsible. And as I said, this is a governor with a history of primary Republicans who don't go his way. And the trajectory of those negotiations, October, November, were not looking particularly good for keeping the government up and running. Then final, their final four passes, takes a couple of weeks to certify the uh, results. And then you had, I think it was not, I think it was, it was either six or nine Republicans crossed the aisle, joined the Democrats and the independents, and they passed a budget that was not in keeping with what the Republican governor had wanted. And the campaign manager and campaign advisor for the ballot initiative were also involved in those negotiations over the budget because they're involved in Alaska politics. They now work with us as well for other states 
they were central to those conversations. And the two things that they were hearing, especially among the Republicans, were now when I go to get reelected, I don't have to worry about a partisan primary. And I actually have to worry now about a majority of my constituents, because that's how I'm going to get reelected. And my assessment is that the majority of my constituents want a functioning government with a fiscally responsible budget. And so that's what happened. That's what they got passed. I'm not saying it's going to work that way 10 out of 10 times, but that's a real life example that we can point to that, you know, I wasn't even involved in that campaign, but I'm very proud of it. Give me some other examples. How do we know? Yeah, I think it's very useful to talk about, even though there aren't that many cases right now where we have, you know, some version, you know, ranked choice voting in Maine, talk about like what you see happening or what, or, or more what you might imagine happening in Nevada or something, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very early to say what Nevada right? but I can tell you the incumbents don't like it. <laughs> and the parties don't typically like it, right? Like in Maine, in the telling in the book, both parties fought uh, the ranked choice voting by and large, right? Yeah. If you're in power through a system that currently exists, you don't want to change it, right? And it's just, it's, it's dynamic that this, that final five voting and that we as an organization are up against everywhere we try and pursue it. Um, but what you see in Nevada, I, was, I mentioned earlier, the sort of ledger, those who support final five are those are, are the ones from the system is not working. That's a very long and diverse group. And it includes a majority of voters because we also polled it. And it's a majority of Democrats and independents and nearly a majority of Republicans. Um, in that state. And you know, the things that resonate with them, it denationalizes politics. It's a way to create more accountability. It's a way to have more voice and more choice in who your elected officials are. It's all messages, frankly, of kind of more democracy, if you will. That's what's resonating. Yeah. I mean, maybe I would add just going back to Alaska. So if you are answering that question in the dimension of results, we just, you know, Aaron gave you the story of what should have been a budget shutdown um, in the current, in the old system. I lived through that for two years in Illinois. um, And so I'm hungry for a way for that to change here. Um, If you look at it just for like healthy electoral competition, you know, Lisa Murkowski had to win through, I'm sure, as you know, through a write-in, what was it, 2010 or 2011. And were it not for this system, there's a good chance that she doesn't make it through that first primary. But now she will. She will get to make her case to the general electorate in Alaska without having to go through the Michigas of, uh, of another write-in campaign. And I don't know why you wouldn't see that already as a success. And if you didn't, that meant you'd be comfortable with, like, let's have a couple just extreme candidates in the end and another, like, one versus one for, for who represents Alaska in the Senate. To me, that's crazy. So just offering another alternative is already um, a real success. The other thing I would offer, just you know, being in and around political reform for a long time, um, everybody, if this conversation were not about a reform, but just about the current system, this would more than likely be singing from the same hymnal about how bad things are right now. But then when we get into dissecting the reform, it can often become quite a blood sport. And the expectations of that reform are often that they're a panacea or that they are, you know, able to crosswalk, you know, up and down, left and right. And what I'm seeing over the last couple of years is that this hypothesis continues to prove out, is now proving out 
in a live environment in Alaska. And I think we're being disciplined and responsible and thinking about, okay, where are the next proving grounds that we should pursue as a match to that? And also the added benefit is we don't need this in 50 states tomorrow in order to get, you know, a better situation for our democracy. If you can create sort of that fulcrum, you know, opportunity for gang of six and gang of eight by doing this in just a couple more states, you know, you have, you know, both chambers in D.C., are in a position where maybe they can tackle some of these hard problems without getting to that inevitable, inevitable stalemate that they're in seemingly every day. I think there's a an assumption here that bipartisan coalitions or ones that reach across the parties will have better results. There's been also more of a pro-party responsible party system theory that you know parties are very good at aggregating preferences and that that coalition itself, when it governs well, puts forward a platform, passes a platform, gets collective responsibility for whether things go well or not. And those parties, if they're doing their job, they can exercise discipline over their members by primarying them, by taking out people who aren't along with the party's preferences. The Democrats are have been knocking out pro-life Democrats for years and sorting themselves out ideologically so that they're all aligned. The Republicans, in, in their own crazy way, are using the primary system to drive Trumpists into the party right now and, and others out. I think the argument could be made that that is a way that that things could work too. Why do you think that representatives that are less tied to party, that are more free agents and operating more on their own personal brands, which is actually a direction we've been moving for a long time, why do you think that is better? I have a couple of different ways of answering that. I'm sure Saul does too. I'll start with with the anecdote, right, that we have an electorate in this country right now where there are more independents than Democrats or Republicans. Although almost all those independents identify truly with one party or another oh, and vote that totally, way. Yeah. Totally agree. But I'm tying this now to access to the primary and then what that means for competition. And the one thing we haven't really touched on with Final Five Voting is that we call it free market politics. When you guarantee an up to five-way general election, you insert a, you know several magnitudes greater opportunities for competition or politics than we have right now. We're believers that that's a good thing. I'm not going to say that everyone at the office is you know, the same kind of free market capitalist that I am. But when it comes to Final Five voting, we're all believers and more competition is needed in our political system right now. And any argument that says that parties as gatekeepers to our elections, especially, again, in an environment in which the majority of registered voters are not allowed to vote in party primaries and therefore don't get to have their voices heard until the general election, that that is somehow a better system, a more representative system, to me, just doesn't resonate whatsoever. Well, nothing stops people from registering for a party and voting in that party primary. Well, sure, but they oftentimes can't register in both, right? Which means right. that they're, they, they only get to yeah, and some primaries are one closed, or the other. And some are not closed. And yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas if we had open primaries all around, then we have, I would, you know, 
then we have a party that is or a, a primary that is truly a litmus test, you know, as as it reflects the general electorate, which is again, I mean, that's that's majority right. and, of and voters. When it comes to the the user, the voter user experience, my old digital days, that party ID is important, right? And that's something that we're very clear about, which I think often gets lost is, you know, when you're getting into this first round, you know, single ballot primary that will then lead to upwards of five people moving on to the general, that party label should absolutely still be there. Without it, there it creates some risk about people following baser instincts and cues to make their decisions. And I think that speaks to your point that you made initially about how important the parties are as platforms. And we are not for weaker parties. That is not the, the purpose of this. And they're pretty weak right now. Right. And so, I mean, I think that's sort of the irony or maybe some of the paradox of, of your point is that they've been doing, I think, what you articulated for quite a while and it, it continues to degradate. And there is plenty of data that show the spread between that sorting and it's it, and how it in fact does match like what each of those voting blocks are looking for. So I think this could create a little bit more of a return. This is, this is a challenging way of phrasing it in a political discussion to return to the center, but you know, with a lowercase C. Well, I would, when I'm discussing final five with my friends on the Republican side, I say like, I'm doing this in part because I think under final five, there will be more Republicans elected that I like. I'm not a Trump Republican. Broader coalition. I'm, yeah, and it's Republicans. It, right, broader coalition Republicans, Republicans who are interested in in, in negotiating. Um, principled Republicans who are interested in negotiating. I think it can have the same effect for Democrats as well. To Saul's point, we're not looking to create a squishy middle here. We believe in strong parties. Saul and I are both fans of principled people arguing it out and then coming to an agreement on something. And you know that's that is what Final Five is about. It's not about changing who wins. It's about changing incentives for the winners so that they're incentivized to serve the the broader public interest. Yeah. I mean, I would add, and this is, so if you look at, let's say, a Marjorie Taylor Greene, what I want to support and what I care most, maybe not most, I care a lot about is that she has to face a broader electorate in her district to win. And that, you know, the neurologist that she beat in the primary is able in the same way that Murkowski would be able to have a shot in the general election where you have higher information voters, you have more turnout. And not because I'm doing this because I want to dictate whether Marjorie Taylor Greene should or should not win, even though personally, I think she should never win anything ever in a, a context of leadership. And again, that's a personal point of view. But in a Final Five election, she would have to consider a moder- moderating herself. Were she going to get anything on her district? First place, first place votes. Yeah. I mean, if she, if she has, if she has a district where there's 51% of people that love Marjorie Taylor Greene, this reform will not do anything. Correct. She'll go through regardless and probably should. Right. Exactly. And that's why we're not, we are very careful to say that this is not about picking who wins. So for everyone who thinks Marjorie Taylor Greene is an outlandish crank, which I do, there's somebody else who thinks that that is the kind of person they want. On the progressive side, we just had that mayoral election in New York and a moderate got elected over the 
some of the more progressive choices, people on the left of, of the winning candidate are not that happy. That is the point, is that for every person like me who has a point of view, and I should have it as an American with partisanship about who I like or who I have disdain for, I have a mirror. That orientation shouldn't be what decides this ref- how we approach these reforms. And so I'm able to say, like, you know, what I think, and Aaron would offer the same. I'm sure there are people who I like very deeply that I think Aaron has very strong opinions as to why he doesn't like them. That's good. That's what we're supposed to have in a deliberative democracy. That is healthy partisanship. But it is it, it is now a controlling force. And what we're looking for is a moderating force so that you can have that functional election where the general electorate is deciding. And to your point, if 51% of the people in that healthy structure, if that's what they want, that is their America, right? I remember a number of years ago, there was a lot of attempts to reform the runoff system in the South. The runoff system in the South had been used to make sure that a white candidate won because African-Americans were in the minority. If they happened to get a plurality victory in the first round, they would be sure in racial block voting terms to lose in the general. Have you guys thought about some of the other consequences that might not be salutary about changing the system? Yeah. And we've, um, there was a recent study on the impacts of Final Five on communities of color, which was a start. And that was University of Wisconsin Election Center, Barry Burden, and Professor Andrea Benjamin from the University of Oklahoma. And they looked at the potential impacts of Final Five in that context of of communities of color. And I can share that with you and, and, and send it around. I think the core conclusions are that when you're comparing it to the current system, which is often in service, unfortunately, is some of those same, maybe not directly, but the, the same goals that you articulate or results that you articulate from that runoff change in the South, this naturally just opens up those fields in the primary into the general so that, you know, in these districts, opportunities for people of color to have a platform, to be considered, to find their way to a general. And then because of the ranked choice element, create new accountability structures, whether they win or not that tie back to those ideas and how those connect to their communities. It looks promising. So I'm happy to share that with you. And then Aaron, if you want to add anything there. This is a question always on our mind, right? Especially in my world where you talk to conservatives, right? They always want to know unintended consequences, unintended impacts, et cetera, right? And it's, there's a point at which this is hypothetical, um, but then there's elements of it that are real life. RCV is real life, open primaries are real life, Alaska is real life where you've got the package. And so we do look at those things constantly. You've got a bucket of work specifically for that. Um, and we'll have more stuff you know, coming out over the years on that. But I think at the end of the day, what I at least personally come back to is I've been in, in politics now for almost 20 years and a pretty good sense of how the current system works. I help, you know, in my own little way, build parts of it. And I can play this out in my head. I can talk to friends of mine who are in Congress and in the parties and all of that. And we can talk it through and I feel a lot better about what this can produce than what I already know the current system is producing. I think we're foolish if we're not looking at ways of innovating our democracy right now. I, I think so too. And I think that a reform stands a better chance, even if it's complicated for some people. This takes some education, I think. But I, I think it stands a better chance 
if it feels more democratic, right? If it feels like this is giving voters a better chance, like the progressive moment in this country where we switched from state legislators electing senators to direct election of senators, that felt more democratic, right? The people could directly vote for that office. There've been a lot of changes like that along the way, whether they were broadening the electorate to allow more voters, they felt somehow more in line with the ideals of the country and less aligned with machine politics or whatever kind of had gotten the system stuck at a different point in time in the country. We've had lots of different phases of that. If you guys were had just a few minutes to, to sort of hit this point about Final Five, sell it. Sell, baby, sell. <laughs> I mean, I think we expect we expect naturally healthy competition in every sphere of our life in America. Like if you want to go buy a truck, right, you know, and you will without question, you can consider a Ford or a Chevy, get crazy, get a Mitsubishi, you know, hang tight until the electrical comes out and until then get a used car. You expect that marketplace to give you options. If you can't get the Ford, you'll get the Chevy. If you can't take the Chevy, you'll get the Volkswagen. Who knows? But yet when we think about our politics, when we think about choice and that marketplace in politics, we allow ourselves to accept that this is just how it has to be, right? And that doesn't mean that it should be in these elections, you know, an R, a D, a G, a P, whatever. I mean, let those, let those slates set themselves, but they should have the ability to, to be more open. And if let's say Aaron and I are two of the two people of the same party, but we have a, a different enough views, let the electorate have the opportunity to consider that and then empower us to solve something once we've won, right? Actually do our jobs. And you have to have had conversations in this work. You know, I'm, I'm sure you can count dozens of elected officials, current and past that you've talked to have said, I just can't, I, my hands are tied. I can't do anything. You know, this, this job does not empower me to use my skills or solve problems. I mean, we hear it all the time. I'll add the, the, the argument for return on investment in this, whether you're a donor, a voter, an interested party, doesn't really matter. However you consider your resource to be, right, is we have a pretty poorly functioning democracy right now. And it is tied in large part to these perverse incentives that are structurally built on purpose to be this way. If you're interested in greater functionality of government, more accountability of government, better representation of the general public through government, you have different things you can invest your resource in. Some of them are very powerful. Some of them are, are very achievable. It's very rare that the very powerful are very achievable. Final five hits that sweet spot. It leverages reforms that people understand and in large part are comfortable with. People who experience them like them. There's lots of data on that. And it's a package when you put them together that is particularly potent. And so if you're looking to deploy your resource, just in one thing that is both powerful and achievable, Final Five is your sweet spot. Timing is a little weird right now for a reform like this. I'll tell you why I think that. We actually are in a moment where we have one functional party and one dysfunctional party. We have one party that has been captured by a personality who is a highly imperfect man, let's just say. And we face a real threat to the continuance of democracy, as we saw on, on January 6th. A lot of the people I talk to feel like move number one 
is got to be defeat the authoritarian nationalist party and then turn to many reforms that are needed. Why invest in something that's going to take time to change the incentives when we are right on the frying pan right now? Let me go first and I'll pass it to you, Aaron. Two things I would say is um, we, we have to look at this holistically and that there are other people doing other things. We have picked the thing that we're going to do. And I know many of them on the funding side that have the you know, the six-way six approach they're taking to a better democracy, and many of it includes some of the stuff that you're talking about and other things. But we've made the choice to do one thing, and we made that choice, you know, Catherine made the choice years ago, and we started this work together in 19, and now we've built our team. And back to the example in Alaska, like getting off that budget cliff, that's something, right? And so to your point about timing, like we're already seeing those benefits, and I've worked on redistricting for a long, long time. I'm not beating my head against that wall anymore. And now where we are in the census sequence of things, like you can close that door for another decade. So, you know, I'm trusting other people doing other things and we're just going to keep doing this. Okay, Aaron. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and I'll just say, if, if I'm looking to invest my resource in saving our democracy, I'm not betting on either party. Um, and I don't mean that in any kind of partisan comment. I mean, the last six months uh, in D.C. to me has been a demonstration by one party, the Republican Party, and both obstructionism and just an inability to figure out how to win. There was opportunities there to claim victories um, with some of the biggest legislation that just missed opportunities, blew me away. And then you've got the other party, the Democratic Party, which, you know, the slimmest majority, but a majority um, cannot figure out how to, you know, get some of the party's most passionate things passed that are also supported by a majority of the public. They're getting there. I would not bet a single dollar on either party being able to, you know, save our democracy or even sort of, you know, help it chug along at its current, um, its current pace, its current trajectory for very long. Well, there's certainly a, a pretty obvious choice between them right now. One of the things that we really haven't touched on which is there's a second half to the reform that you guys are proposing. So there's the electoral move, which is final five, but there's also changes in the rules of governing. Do you want to talk about that also? Yeah, let, let's hit on it briefly. And, and thank you for doing your homework. We almost never get asked about that, but that you know ties back to kind of our, our North Star, which is optimal democratic outcomes. And elections machinery is that first step, which we talked about with final five. And then you know, let's say the three of us are all elected in final five states and it's working the way that we believe it will, we're then incentivized to optimize our jobs. And over the last, you know, several decades and periods where these rules have been, you know, solidified to entrench and and, and sort of ensure these electoral outcomes, other things have have happened and other rules have been made to sort of muck up the works of legislation and uh, that aren't modern, that aren't model. So the the thinking is, is once we've unlocked this, how do we empower these elected officials to do their jobs in a cleaner way? And, you know, that is the sort of the second tier of work, which we're, you know, spend very little energy on right now because all of our focus is on getting this first thing so we can get the second thing. If I remember right, it's like, let's have a commission to study how to reorganize the Congress around 
uh, better rules like the Legislative Reorganization Act of 1946 or something. So let's take another stop at cleaning this up because it has gotten pretty complex and rule bound. And there are things like the Hastert rule, which, you know, makes all Republicans only bring things to the floor if they're supported by majority of Republicans. Which isn't actually a rule. It's just, no. So yeah, that's a good example. But you know how committee assignments work. Um, But again, thinking across like the congressional dimension and what are best practices that serve a modern environment, we use the term zero-based rule-making. Where can we sort of start from zero, at least in the concept of how we go about the business of legislating in this country. And you think we could make things a lot better if we did that? Yeah, and I'm not alone. I mean, there is the, what is the select committee for that? Well, I forget the name of the committee in the House that is supposed to kind of review. Modernization of Congress. You know, and I think they have sort of floating offices and they take little bites at things. But how do you get the, how do you give that teeth so they can, you know, look really clearly at their house and say, you know, we can do this a hell of a lot better. Now we're incentivized to because we don't get elected to solve political problems, we get elected to solve policy problems. So you, earlier in this interview, talked about some of the things you're going to do next. Ballot measures on 15 states. Can you talk a little bit about the plan going forward? I threw out the goal that we want to pass this in 15 states by the end of the decade, right? I mean, that's, that is not the only goal of IPI. That is just gives you a sense of the scope of what we think is possible, what we think is advantageous for the country. Final five has to be adopted at the state level. Some states require that you do it through ballot initiative, others that you do it through state legislation. You route oftentimes affects the sort of seats of government that it can be applied to. But that's kind of broadly speaking, um, the goal. Now we, as Saul said, we have to support that with, you know, robust theory and scholarship. There's the marketing and communications element of it. There's the networking and fundraising elements of it as well. And that's why we have a whole institution to do this. Saul, do you want to add to that? Yeah. And and as I've touched on before, making sure we're continuing to interrogate the work and broadening our partners in that um, so that we're asking all these tough questions. So we're thinking more and more about unintended consequences and supporting implementation as well. I mean, that's critical. So Alaska will be um, they'll have their first final four election next year, 2022. Um, what do we need to do to support that to make sure it's implemented? Well, I would say a lot of folks thought, you know, RCV is an example in NYC going off maybe pretty well until there was a snafu at the board of elections, which was unrelated to RCV. But RCV gets freighted with that difficulty. Um, there's questions around, you know, what was the education campaign in advance of the election? What does data show? Um, at a postmortem level from from New York, and how can that educate us and how we support Alaska? I've been around too many reforms that had the sort of passage or bus mentality. Let's get the thing passed, and then everybody like parties and disappears. And then, like I've seen in Illinois, like you know, automatic voter registration sit on a shelf because there was no plan for what do you do to implement it, and then evaluate it so that we can continue to support it and make sure it works. So the institute really is trying to think about this you know, broadly for the lifespan of this work well beyond just what is passed this year or next year. Who are your best allies in getting this to happen? I'll give you the snarky response and then Saul and I can go back and forth and fill it out, which is, you know, people who are frustrated with the status quo. Um, I mean, you know, it's Saul went through the history of kind of how we got to where we are through Catherine and and, and Michael and Final Five and, and IPI. I mean, the initial path was through the Harvard Business School, and I mentioned free market politics. I mean, this naturally finds a place 
business community, tech community, those sorts who tend to be fairly pragmatic people who want sort of minimal functionality of a system and aren't, aren't seeing that um, in, uh, you know, in, in our political system. We do poll it. We're, we're going to have allies, <laughs> a lot of allies on the voter side for this who are just not, not either not happy with their choices and or not happy with sort of the outcomes of, of the people who, you know, who get elected to office. We have partisans who are also supporting this because they don't like the direction of their party. We have people who have never been involved in politics before, who in large part have never been involved because they've never liked it. They've never seen a, a well-functioning system and they Final Five resonates with them. It's a very, very broad and diverse coalition. And I would just go back to that ledger, those for whom the system works versus those for whom it doesn't. And 99 out of 100 times, you can determine someone's support based on whether or not they think the system is working. Yeah, it's a strange bedfellow. It's like I've, you know, I consider people members of this coalition that previous to this work, I never thought I would be on the phone with them just by dint of who they are, where they come from and who I am and where I come from. So it is a time for strange bedfellows today if we're going to get over this hump. Um, and I know you made your point about, you know, effective polarization before. So I, I do hear that. One of the things I've been most proud of is there's this group of veterans who have come to this work um, pretty organically, just saying, you know, they, and it's not only, you know, veterans on the ground, but elected officials. I mean, the forward of the book is Mike Gallagher, a Republican from Wisconsin, and Chrissy Houlihan, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, right? Both who served and came together in support of this. You know, I think this mantra of we don't agree on a lot, but we agree on this seems to carry through and self-generate whether we're in the room or not. I would think there would be a lot of elected representatives who are in the mode of problem solving and worrying about what kind of policy works for the most people. A lot of people that are elected at every level are like that, that would see this as at least theoretically creating more colleagues like them for them. Colleagues and a liberation to actually do that and be rewarded electorally for it. Both of those things, I would say, yeah. Yeah. Well, is there a question that I failed to ask you that I should have? Sorry, I just, this is the first time someone has asked that question and it's, it resonates with me. This is totally tangential. I write a wine blog on the side and that's how I always end my interviews with winemakers. What is the thing I didn't think to ask about? It's the first time I've heard it asked back. I, I stole and it from I'm, Dan Rather. So yeah, I, it's funny because I started my career as, as a journalist and that's they teach you that like, you know, end every interview with that. So yeah, that's, that's a good question you didn't ask. Oh, I can't think of anything. Let me ask you a question. So often when you come out of an interview like this, you'll meet and you'll, there'll be a little post-mortem. You'll be like, this went well, this didn't go well. Are we now out Why of the, the interview, by the way? <laughs> just so we're clear? No, we're not. <laughs> okay. We're not, so that we're clear. So I'm just saying, like, when you look back over this interview, what now do you think about how it went and, like, what you would have liked to have said that, that you can now say? What did you miss? What would you like to better articulate? What are you happy about? Give me the post-mortem. Well, this is the first interview I've done on this job, and I think I'm pleased with it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think you guys are both seem very practiced at like like you're 
you know, I thought, okay, I'm not going to talk to Catherine Gale. Are the two executive directors going to know their stuff? You seem very well steeped in, well, in I, what you're working on. I, I always joke I talk for a living. I've been doing I've been doing that for a long time now. And politics is 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 coalition building. I think foundationally, and you, you so you have to attract people to your ideas and motivate them to take action. And and that's conversation. I mean, that's just that's what it is. What I took from it is that you guys are on board. Like you actually think this. I don't mean actually in a bad sense. I mean, you think that this would help and therefore it makes sense to spend a chunk of your life pushing it. Yeah. And there's, there's sacrifice in that. I mean, I I think I would say, you know, for me, you know, my, my dad is an immigrant who was born in a displaced persons camp in Berlin. And after the Holocaust, after my grandparents got out of the camps. And so for me, I would say, I can keep asking myself and have been over the last 10 years, like, is the, is what I'm doing worth it? Like, am I honoring that? I feel like I have a debt to pay. This is a time when patriotism is more often laughed at, you know, in some media circles than it is celebrated. But I think I, I feel a lot of patriotism. And when I wake up every morning, what am I going to do with my time? Are my daughters going to look at me and say, you know, daddy, thank you for doing that. Or are they going to say, oh, great, you made money or you didn't, but you know, where were you? And you just end up making a choice. Like I've told you, I've worked in education. I've worked in journalism. I've worked in all these spaces and inevitably felt like I was just hitting my head against the wall or pushing on the ocean, like pick your aphorism. And when I, when I first looked at this, I kept interrogating it. Like I have a journalist background. I, I kept looking at it skeptically over and over and over and over. And I still do. I still have deep moments of existential concern with Aaron and others. I'm, is this the right thing? Is this what we should be doing? And what I keep coming back to is, I'm going to take a swing at something. And everything I've seen is this is the one that's worth taking a swing and missing. I'm a partisan person. And this is generally a partisan podcast. And yet I interview a lot of people who are interested in the democracy from a nonpartisan perspective, who are interested in fostering conversations that talk across the divide, who are looking at reforms to systems like you. That's why I kind of asked that question before about timing. I think there are forces that need to be beaten and there are systems that need to be improved. And we can do both of those things. And I'm glad that people like you are working on one type of reform that I would hope, if enacted, would make a big difference. This is very meaningful work. And I don't think I realized that until I started visiting states and meeting with people and talking to them about this. Because it's one thing for me to go to a state where I don't live, where I don't vote, and say, hey, we've got this idea. We think you might like it. What do you think? It's another thing to ask them to do it or to try and motivate them to do it, right? Because it is going to affect them, probably in a very meaningful way. And, you know, Saul and I both hope to be able to do Illinois before we're done with this, for sure. Um, I'd like to vote under this system. When you sit down with people who who are capable of being part of making this a success or a failure in their state, you're asking them to take it seriously and consider it and be part of it. That's when I really got the full sense of kind of the significance of this, because you saw them go through, this affects my livelihood, my family, right? All the things that matter most, the list that Saul ran through for himself. Um, And that's when it started to resonate for me that, you know, if, if we're successful, this will impact people in very meaningful ways. And, you know, we're doing it because we believe the impact is positive. In most areas of 
advocacy or interest groups in our country, whenever there's a new reform or point of view being pushed like guns or abortion or whatever, there is an organized opposition on the other side. Have you yet seen organized opposition take shape to this, which might be a sign actually of, of some success, but doing something right. Yeah. It's coming together. Yeah. And where is that coming from? It's coming from the people in the places that control the system that we're trying to change on both sides. Or, yeah, I mean, yeah. just yeah. Look, I mean, it okay. looked to the top two reform in California. Like, you know, I think it was Kevin McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi. The, the one thing they agreed about is how much they hated top two. Right. Yeah. Well, it's very interesting to talk to you guys. I'm interested to see how things roll from here forward, and I appreciate you taking the time. Anything else you want to say? No. <laughs> no. Okay. No, this has been great. We appreciate it. That was Solomon Lieberman and Aaron Menenberg. They are at political-innovation.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.